The 415 Express by Amelia B. Edwards Part 1 The events which I am about to relate took place between 9 and 10 years ago. Sebastopol had fallen in the early spring. The Peace of Paris had been concluded since March. Our commercial relations with the Russian Empire were but recently renewed, and I, returning home after my first northward journey since the war, was well pleased with the prospect of spending the month of December under the hospitable and thoroughly English roof of my excellent friend, Jonathan Jelf Esquire, of Dumbledon Manor, Clayborough, East Anglia. Traveling in the interests of the well-known firm in which it is my lot to be a junior partner, I had been called upon to visit not only the capitals of Russia and Poland, but had found it also necessary to pass some weeks among the trading ports of the Baltic. Once it came that the year was already far spent before I again set foot on English soil, and that instead of shooting pheasants with him, as I had hoped, in October, I came to be my friend's guest during the more genial Christmas tide. My voyage over, and a few days given up to business in Liverpool and London, I hastened down to Clayborough with the delight of a schoolboy whose holidays are at hand. My way lay by the Great East Anglin Line, as far as Clayborough Station, where I was to be met by one of the Dumbledon carriages and conveyed across the remaining nine miles of country. It was a foggy afternoon, singularly warm for the 4th of December, and I had arranged to leave London by the 4.15 Express. The early darkness of winter had already closed in. The lamps were lighted in the carriages. A clinging damp dimmed the windows, adhered to the door handles, and pervaded all the atmosphere, while the gas jets at the neighboring bookstand diffused a luminous haze that only served to make the gloom of the terminus more visible. Having arrived some seven minutes before the starting of the train, and by the convivance of the guard, taken sole possession of an empty compartment. I lighted my traveling lamp, made myself particularly snug, and settled down to the undisturbed enjoyment of a book and a cigar. Great, therefore, was my disappointment, when at the last moment a gentleman came hurrying along the platform, glanced into my carriage, opened the locked door with a private key, and stepped in. It struck me at the first glance that I had seen him before, a tall, spare man, thin-lipped, light-eyed, with an ungraceful stoop in the shoulders, and scant gray hair worn somewhat long upon the collar. He carried a light waterproof coat, an umbrella, and a large brown Japan deed box, which he at last placed under the seat. This done, he felt carefully in his breast pocket as if to make certain of the safety of his purse or pocketbook, laid his umbrella in the netting overhead, spread the waterproof across his knees, and exchanged his hat for a traveling cap of some scotch material. By this time, the train was moving out of the station and into the faint gray of the wintry twilight beyond. I now recognized my companion. I recognized him from the moment when he removed his hat and uncovered the lofty, furrowed, and somewhat narrow brow beneath. I had met him, as I distinctly remembered, some three years before, at the very house for which, in all probability, he was now bound, like myself. His name was Dwerahouse. He was a lawyer by profession, and if I was not greatly mistaken, was first cousin to the wife of my host. I knew also that he was a man eminently well-to-do, both as regarded by his professional and private means. The Jelfs entertained him with that sort of observant courtesy which falls to the lot of the rich relation. The children made much of him, and the old butler, albeit somewhat surly to the general, treated him with deference. I thought observing him by the vague mixture of lamplight and twilight, that Miss Jelf's cousin looked all the worse for the three years' wear and tear which had gone over his head since our last meeting. 
He was very pale and had a restless light in his eye that I did not remember to have observed before. The anxious lines, too, about his mouth were deepened, and there was a cavernous, hollow look about his cheeks and temples, which seemed to speak of sickness or sorrow. He had glanced at me as he came in, but without any gleam of recognition in his face. Now he glanced again, as I fancied, somewhat doubtfully. When he did for the third or fourth time, I ventured to address him. Mr. John Dwerahouse, I think? That is my name, he replied. I had the pleasure of meeting you at Dumbledon about three years ago. Mr. Dwerahouse bowed. I thought I knew your face, he said. But your name, I regret to say... Langford, William Langford. I have known Jonathan Jelf since we were boys together at Merchant Taylor's, and I generally spend a few weeks at Dumbledon in the shooting season. I suppose we are bound for the same destination? Not if you're on your way to the manor, he replied. I am traveling upon business, rather troublesome business, too, whilst you, doubtless, have only pleasure in view. Just so. I'm in the habit of looking forward to this visit as to the brightest three weeks in all the year. It is a pleasant house, said Mr. Dwerahouse. The pleasantest I know. And Jelf is thoroughly hospitable. The best and kindest fellow in the world. They have invited me to spend Christmas week with them, pursued Mr. Dwerahouse, after a moment's pause. And are you coming? I cannot tell. It must depend on the issue of this business which I have in hand. You have heard, perhaps, that we are about to construct a branch line from Blackwater to Stockbridge. I explained that I had been for some months away from England, and had therefore heard nothing of the contemplated improvement. Mr. Dwerahouse smiled complacently. It will be an improvement, he said. A great improvement. Stockbridge is a flourishing town and needs but a more direct railway communication with the metropolis to become an important center of commerce. This branch was my own idea. I brought the project before the board and have myself superintended the execution of it up to the present time. You're an East England director, I presume? My interest in the company, replied Mr. Dwerahouse, is threefold. I am a director, I am a considerable shareholder, and, as head of the firm of Dwerahouse, Dwerahouse, and Crake, I am the company's principal solicitor. Loquacious, self-important, full of his pet project, and apparently unable to talk on any other subject, Mr. Dwerahouse then went on to tell of the opposition he had encountered and the obstacles he had overcome in the cause of the Stockbridge branch. I was entertained with a multitude of local details and local grievances, the rapacity of one squire, the impracticability of another, the indignation of the rector whose gleb was threatened, the culpable indifference of the Stockbridge town people, who could not be brought to see that their most vital interest hinged upon a junction with the Great East Anglin Line, the spite of the local newspaper, and the unheard-of difficulties intending the common question, were each and all laid before me with a circumstantiality that possessed the deepest interest for my excellent fellow-traveler, but none whatsoever for myself. From these to my despair, he went on to more intricate matters, to the approximate expenses of construction per mile, to the estimates sent in by different contractors, to the probable traffic returns of the new line, to the provisional clauses of the new act as enumerated in Schedule D of the company's last half-yearly report, and so on and on and on, till my head ached, and my attention flagged, 
and my eyes kept closing in spite of every effort that I made to keep them open. At length, I was roused by these words. Seventy-five thousand pounds. Cash down. Seventy-five thousand pounds? Cash down? I repeated, in the liveliest tone I could assume. That is a heavy sum. A heavy sum to carry here, replied Mr. Dwerahouse, pointing significantly to his breast pocket. But a mere fraction of what we shall ultimately have to pay. You do not mean to say that you have seventy-five thousand pounds at this moment on your person, I exclaimed. My good sir, have I not been telling you so for the last half hour? Said Mr. Dwerahouse, testily. That money has to be paid over at half-past eight this evening, at the office of Sir Thomas's solicitors, on completion of the deed of sale. But how will you get across by night from Blackwater to Stockbridge with seventy-five thousand pounds in your pocket? To Stockbridge? Echoed the lawyer. I find I have made myself very imperfectly understood. I thought I had explained how this sum only carries us as far as Mallingford, the first stage, as it were, of our journey and how our route from Blackwater to Mallingford lies entirely through Sir Thomas Little's property. I beg your pardon, I stammered. I fear my thoughts were wandering. So you only go as far as Mallingford tonight? Precisely. I shall get a conveyance from the Blackwater Arms. And you? Oh, Jelf sends a trap to meet me at Clayborough. Can I be the bearer of any message from you? You may say, if you please, Mr. Langford, that I wish I could have been your companion all the way, and that I will come over, if possible, before Christmas. Nothing more? Mr. Dwerhouse smiled grimly. Well, he said, you may tell my cousin that she need not burn the hall down in my honor this time, and that I shall be obliged if she will order the blue room chimney to be swept before I arrive. That sounds tragic. Had you a conflagration on the occasion of your last visit to Dumbledon? Something like it. There had been no fire lighted in my bedroom since the spring, and the flue was foul, and the rooks had built in it. So when I went up to dress for dinner, I found the room full of smoke and the chimney on fire. Are we already at Blackwater? The train had gradually come to a pause while Mr. Dwerhouse was speaking, and on putting my head out of the window, I could see the station some few hundred yards ahead. There was another train before us blocking the way, and the guard was making use of the delay to collect the Blackwater tickets. I had scarcely ascertained our position when the ruddy-faced official appeared at our carriage door. Tickets, sir, said he. I am for Clayborough, I replied, holding out the tiny pink card. He took it, glanced at it by the light of his little lantern, gave it back, looked, as I fancied, somewhat sharply at my fellow traveler, and disappeared. He did not ask for yours, I said with some surprise. They never do, replied Mr. Dwerahouse. They all know me, and, of course, I travel free. Blackwater! Blackwater! cried the porter, running along the platform beside us as we glided into the station. Mr. Dwerahouse pulled out his deed box, put his traveling cap in his pocket, Resumed his hat, took down his umbrella, and prepared to be gone. Many thanks, Mr. Langford, for your society, he said with old-fashioned courtesy. I wish you a good evening. Good evening, I replied, putting out my hand. But he either did not see it or did not choose to see it, 
and slightly lifting his hat, stepped out onto the platform. Having done this, he moved slowly away and mingled with the departing crowd. Leaning forward to watch him out of sight, I trod upon something which proved to be a cigar case. It had fallen, no doubt, from the pocket of his waterproof coat, and was made of a dark Morocco leather with a silver monogram upon the side. I sprang out of the carriage just as the guard came to lock me in. Is there one minute to spare? I asked eagerly. The gentleman who traveled down with me from town has dropped a cigar case. He's not yet out of the station. Just a minute and a half, sir, replied the guard. You must be quick. I dashed along the platform as fast as my feet would carry me. It was a large station, and Mr. Warehouse by this time had gotten more than halfway to the farther end. I, however, saw him distinctly, moving slowly with the stream. Then, as I drew nearer, I saw that he had met some friend, that they were talking as they walked, that they presently fell back somewhat from the crowd and stood aside in earnest conversation. I made straight for the spot where they were waiting. There was a vivid gas jet just above their heads, and the light fell full upon their faces. I saw both distinctly, the face of Mr. Dwarahouse and the face of his companion. Running, breathless, eager as I was, getting in the way of porters and passengers, and fearful every instant lest I should see the train going on without me. Yet I observed that the newcomer was considerably younger and shorter than the director, that he was sandy-haired, mustachioed, small-featured, and dressed in a close-cut suit of scotch tweed. I was now within a few yards of them. I ran against a stout gentleman. I was nearly knocked down by a luggage truck. I stumbled over a carpet bag. I gained the spot just as the driver's whistle warned me to return. To my utter stupefaction, they were no longer there. I had seen them but two seconds before, and they were gone. I stood still. I looked to the right and left. I saw no sign of them in any direction. It was as if the platform had gaped and swallowed them. There were two gentlemen standing here a minute ago, I said to a porter at my elbow. Which way can they have gone? I saw no gentlemen, sir, replied the man. The whistle shrilled out again. The guard far up the platform held up his arm and shouted to me, Come on! If you're going by this train, sir, said the porter, you must run for it. I did run for it. Just gained the carriage as the train began to move, was shoved in by the guard and left breathless and bewildered, with Mr. Dwarehouse's cigar case still in my hand. It was the strangest disappearance in the world. It was like a transformation trick in pantomime. They were there one moment, palpably there, talking with the gaslight full upon their faces, and the next moment they were gone. There was no door near, no window, no staircase. It was a mere slip of barren platform, tapestried with big advertisements. Could anything be more mysterious? It was not worth thinking about, and yet for my life I could not help pondering upon it. Pondering, wondering, conjecturing, turning it over and over in my mind and beating my brains for a solution of the enigma. I thought of it all the way from Blackwater to Clayborough. I thought of it all the way from Clayborough to Dumbledon, as I rattled along the smooth highway in a trim dog cart drawn by a splendid black mare, and driven by the silentest and dapperest of East Anglin grooms. We did the nine miles in something less than an hour, and pulled up before the lodge gates just as the church clock was striking half past seven. A couple minutes more, and the warm glow of the lighted hall was flooding out upon the gravel. A hearty grasp was on my hand, and a clear, jovial voice was bidding me, Welcome to Dumbleton. And now, my dear fellow, said my host, when the first greeting was over, you have no time to spare. We dine at eight, and there are people coming to meet you, so you must just get the dressing business over as quickly as may be. 
By the way, you will meet some acquaintances. The Biddulfs are coming, and Prendergast, Prendergast of the skirmishes, is staying in the house. Adieu. Mrs. Jelf will be expecting you in the drawing room. I was ushered into my room. Not the blue room of which Mr. Dwera House had made disagreeable experience, but a pretty little bachelor's chamber hung with delicate chintz and made cheerful by a blazing fire. I unlocked my portmanteau. I tried to be expeditious, but the memory of my railway adventure haunted me. I could not get free of it. I could not shake it off. It impeded me. It worried me. It tripped me up. It caused me to mislay my studs, to mistie my cravat, to wrench the buttons off my gloves. Worst of all, it made me so late that the party had all assembled before I reached the drawing room. I had scarcely paid my respects to Miss Jelf when dinner was announced, and we were paired off, some eight or ten couples strong, into the dining room. I'm not going to describe either the guests or the dinner. All provincial parties bear the strictest family resemblance, and I am not aware that an East England banquet offers any exception to the rule. There was the usual country baronet and his wife. There were the usual country parsons and their wives. There was the sympaternal turkey and haunch of venison. Venitas vinatum. There is nothing new under the sun. I was placed about midway down the table. I had taken one rector's wife down to dinner, and I had another at my left hand. They talked across me, and their talk was about babies. It was dreadfully dull. At length, there came a pause. The entrees had just been removed, and the turkey had come upon the scene. The conversation had all been of the languidest, but at this moment it happened to have stagnated altogether. Jelf was carving the turkey. Miss Jelf looked as if she was trying to think of something to say. Everybody else was silent. Moved by an unlucky impulse, I thought I would relate my adventure. By the way, Jelf, I began, I came down part of the way today with a friend of yours. Indeed, said the master of the feast slicing scientifically into the breast of the turkey. With whom, pray? With one who bade me tell you that he should, if possible, pay you a visit before Christmas. I cannot think who that could be, said my friend, smiling. It must be Major Thorpe, suggested Miss Jelf. I shook my head. It was not Major Thorpe, I replied. It was near relation of your own, Miss Jelf. Then I am more puzzled than ever, replied my hostess. Pray, tell me who it was. It was no less a person than your cousin, Mr. John Dwerahouse. Jonathan Jelf laid down his knife and fork. Miss Jelf looked at me in a strange, startled way, and never said a word. And he desired me to tell you, my dear madam, that you need not take the trouble to burn down the hall in his honor this time, but only to have the chimney of the blue room swept before his arrival. Before I had reached the end of my sentence, I became aware of something ominous in the faces of the guests. I felt I had said something which I had better have left unsaid, and that for some unexplained reason my words had evoked a general consternation. I sat confounded, not daring to utter another syllable, and for at least two whole minutes there was dead silence around the table. Then Captain Prendergast came to the rescue. You have been abroad for some months, have you not, Mr. Langford? He said with the desperation of one who flings himself into the breach. I heard you had been to Russia. Surely you have something to tell us of the state and temper of the country after the war. I was heartily grateful to the gallant skirmisher for his diversion in my favor. I answered him, I fear somewhat lamely, but he kept the conversation up, and presently one or two others joined in. And so the difficulty, whatever it might have been, was bridged over. Bridged over, but not repaired. 
A something, an awkwardness, of visible constraint remained. The guests hitherto had been simply dull, but now they were evidently uncomfortable and embarrassed. The dessert had scarcely been placed upon the table when the ladies left the room. I seized the opportunity to select a vacant chair next to Captain Prendergast. In heaven's name, I whispered. What was the matter just now? What had I said? You mentioned the name of John Dwerer House. What of that? I had seen him not two hours before. It is a most astounding circumstance that you should have seen him, said Captain Prendergast. Are you sure it was he? As sure as I am of my own identity. We were talking all the way between London and Blackwater. But why does that surprise you? Because, replied Captain Prendergast, dropping his voice to the lowest whisper. Because John Dwera House absconded three months ago with 75,000 pounds of the company's money and has never been heard of since. End of The 415 Express by Amelia B. Edwards This is the end of part one of three.